0: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of What A Week. I am joined, as always, by Andrew Petiprin. Andrew, how are you? I am very well, Zach. How are you? Also doing well. I heard from you, you know, two minutes ago, that you went to the fair last weekend, I, I assume. How, yeah. Was this a Texas state fair or a county fair, city it fair? Is, I, don't, I don't even know.
1: Yeah. It is officially called the State Fair of Texas, not the Texas State Fair, the State Fair of Texas, right yeah. here in Dallas. Uh, at the Cotton Bowl, the famous Cotton Bowl uh, Stadium, and um, it was it absolutely delivered. It was a terrific experience. I am much more of an indoorsman than an outdoorsman. I the the idea of a fair is is um, you know I, I like the thought, but I also have in my mind some fair experiences back in Florida growing up, like hot, dirty, nasty. You know the the State Fair of Texas wasn't like that at all. It it was very clean. It was very nice. It had, a, it had a kind of permanence about it that it felt, it just felt, you know, felt good. My daughter Amy and I went on the giant Ferris wheel that once you get to the top, you can see out over all of Dallas and um, it's it. a really, really cool view. We saw Big Tex, the famous uh, statue, this famous sort of icon of the State Fair of Texas that burned down in 2011 or 12, but they rebuilt it. That was fun. um Had some uh, had some fair food. Not the worst food, not the best, uh, but not the worst. And uh, had a wonderful day. And the other thing, Zach, that I thought you might find interesting is that we took public transportation to get to wow. the state fair from our house. We live in Plano, Texas, on the north side of the Dallas Fort Worth area. And right by our house, about less than five minutes from our house, is the northernmost station for the DART, the Dallas Area Rapid Transit, which for the most part is not very useful to me. It doesn't really get me anywhere that I want to go, but it delivered us right at the doorstep, right to the front door of the State Fair of Texas. And uh, I loved the experience of doing that. It was really great.
0: Was it a throwback to your your time in Europe?
1: No, sadly. I mean, maybe in Chicago, it feels more like European transport, but I, e- even in New York, it feels more european I, I suppose but like american public transport just doesn't feel like europe to me really i mean it was but, it was yeah. very efficient it was very it was very easy to do to, to get there you know but it definitely felt like a novelty i have to be honest it was not uh, sadly, because I would love to have a way to get around where I could read at the same time while I'm going somewhere or listen to a podcast or you know, or something like that. I guess I can do that when I'm driving, but something where I don't feel tense. like I'm the one who has to be in control all the time, even though I say that as somebody who does like driving, but I like public transport too. I wish there was more of it. I wish it was better.
0: I completely agree. In Chicago, I would say it feels a little bit more like Europe than I imagine the public transit in Dallas, certainly more than the public transit in the previous places I've lived in the U S that have something of public transportation, but, uh, it's still not quite. I mean, even the fact that the L is elevated throughout the city of Chicago says that this was all an afterthought, not a foundational part of the the city's planning. The city was not planned around the public transportation. There are some underground, uh, trains in Chicago, but a lot of the L is, you know, elevated. Um, I am looking. I was doing some research while you were talking about the State Fair of Texas. The website is BigTex.com. This looks like a yep. great place to go. I would love to go here. I'm on the food site. There are some delicious looking inventions here, including the Bayou Bowl, a loaded Bayou explosion of our three cheese. Is it Bayou or Bayou? This is. I think it's Bayou, right? I would say bayou, right? bayou, I think. Yeah. I think you're right. Uh, a loaded Bayou explosion of our three cheese macaroni topped with shrimp and lump crab cooked in garlic scampi butter drizzled with a mouthwatering cajun cream sauce and accompanied by a piece of succulent andouille sausage i mean this looks amazing
1: Ooh, we've also I did got not see that
0: i mean the fat elvis this crazy mouthwatering explosion starts with a blend of creamy peanut butter and strawberry jelly whisked together we take Whoa. a warm out of the oven biscuit and spreading a thick coat of this is a typo i guess and spread a thick coat of peanut butter and jelly onto the biscuit then we layer delicious marshmallow fluff and fire toast it just for a second to give it a golden brown campfire taste we also have the mother clucker chicken sandwich which is a t- a take on nashville hot chicken mm-hmm. dim sum loco burritos fried soul food egg roll dough muff a yeast donut battered in banana nut muffin batter and deep fried it's a donut and a muffin i mean this is this is texas through and through
1: all kinds of stuff there's a great german uh tent there you know there's a lot of german uh german heritage here in texas there was this great german tent that had all this authentic german food and beer and stuff it's something man i'm telling you i mean everything's bigger in texas for the most part um the the bigness also at least with the state fair the, the quality w- went with it. So I, uh, I can't, I can't recommend it enough, man. Come on down. Is this to the your state first, of your
0: first visit to the state fair of Texas?
1: First visit. The first year we lived here, everything was weird with COVID stuff. In fact, I think it didn't even happen that year or something last year. We didn't get there, but this year our kids got free tickets from school. And then we, um, we got, we got tickets for us, my wife and I did, and we actually got a $5 discount on the grown up tickets for taking the dart uh, like there was like a partnership or something. So we ended up, you it didn't cost a whole lot, honestly.
0: Wow. Wonderful. Yeah. I would love to go. I do also see a big, a big statue of big text there as well, right on mm-hmm. the homepage, big yeah. What a production who would have thought this is also not exactly how I pictured state fairs, but if I lived in Dallas, I would definitely be there as well.
1: Yeah. Hey, let me ask you a question, Zach. Yeah. Are you uh, following the uh, various congressional and uh, Senate and you know various races that are going on in our country these days?
0: Uh, I mean, from time to time, uh, one of them crosses my newsfeed. I paid fairly close attention to the uh, the John Fetterman one in Pennsylvania because okay,
1: this is what just, I wanted to find out okay. your your take <laughs> yes. on because we have someone running for national office or state state ri- statewide office who has to communicate. By means of a computer right what do you make of this what do you make of this guy
0: so it is it is remarkable um this was actually a candidate for misinformation segment you may have seen this you probably did it sounds like you did uh but msnbc so for for months so john fetterman had a stroke months ago i think something like six months ago and ever since that stroke he has had a markedly difficult time communicating both understanding what is said to him and forming coherent thoughts in response to to any sort of question so because of that, his campaign, as far as I can tell, has largely shielded him from the public eye, at least from unscripted, uncontrolled environments. He has not, for example, done a debate against his opponent, Dr. Oz. He has not taken or fielded <clears throat> spontaneous interview questions or spontaneous questions from a crowd. It's all been very tightly controlled and manufactured just this past week or maybe it was over the weekend. MSNBC sat down with with uh, the hopeful senator. And one of the conditions of this interview, as I understand it, was that he had to have in front of him a computer monitor that would display real time text captioning so that he could better understand what was being said to him by the reporter. Uh, And the reporter said to her credit, she said when we were doing the pre interview before the camera started rolling, it was not clear to us at all that he understood what we were saying to him, which is pretty substantial. Now, now, we can talk about why this is an issue. I definitely think this is an issue. The reason why is not because a disabled person cannot be a United States Senator. Of course not. I mean, we've had disabled people, people with various disabilities, be United States Senators before, and I sure hope it will happen again. I'm even pretty, I mean, Tammy Duckworth, for example, has a disability given that she's an amputee. Um, so this is happening now. This has happened in the past. This certainly will happen again. The issue is not that John Fetterman has a pretty substantive Disability here. The issue to me is that his campaign has been hiding it all along. Uh, It's only recently, you know, when once it became hard to deny, he did make some serious faux pas in even some of these very controlled environments when he was being interviewed previously this year. And so it really just got to the point where they had to, I think, sort of admit that there are some substantial limitations here because of his stroke. And even in this uh, in this very controlled MSNBC environment, you can see you can see him struggling with this. So the issue is not that he has a disability. The issue is that the campaign was covering for a long time. And I think there is a further issue uh, that this disability in particular does call into question his ability to be an effective United States senator. Uh, I don't I don't think that it's impossible for him to be an effective United States senator with some sort of cognitive processing or speech disability. But the onus is certainly in that campaign to be able to say, or in the onus is on the candidate himself, to be able to say, this will not prevent me from being an effective United States senator. Uh, It reminds me of the Freddie DeBoer piece last week when DeBoer was talking about the Americans with Disabilities Act. and He said, this is great legislation. Why? Because it levels the playing field to a degree and makes sure that we make reasonable accommodations for every American, regardless of their abilities, hence wheelchair ramps on all federal buildings, that's a good thing. But, DeBoer said, it's not a good thing necessarily, uh, well, it's not a good thing, to require uh, airlines to hire blind pilots, right? Because that would be every possible accommodation, not simply every reasonable accommodation. And so, uh, so it is definitely fair to ask the question, does this limit John Fetterman's ability to be United States Senator? Uh, and I think given what I have seen, I have serious questions. If you know, I'm not a citizen of Pennsylvania. I'm not or not I'm not a resident of the the Keystone state. Uh, but if I were, I would definitely have questions about John Fetterman's ability to adequately represent me and my interests in uh the US Senate. So that's my brief take on it, Andrew. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, again, yeah, I completely uh I want to echo that it, it doesn't it's not a question of whether a person with a disability can or can't uh per se be, uh, you know, represent the people of his state or something like that. One of the concerns I have, though, is that, I mean, this is all pretty recent for him. Um, you know, he had this stroke, and then he was, you know, really incapacitated, and he's kind of been working his way back or whatever. And there just seem to be so many question marks. And I guess, you know, it'll ultimately be up to the people to decide what they what they want to do. But um, it does seem like, okay, fine, well, may- maybe he'll transition to a place where he's going to like live permanently with some kind of Impairment, or, or you know, with some kind of disability, and then he'll build his whole life with these kind of modifications, and like maybe then that'll all be okay as far as his ability to kind of do the day to day work of serving in the United States Senate. But you know, there just, just seem to be too many question marks at the moment. Um, now, whether his uh, whether his uh, opponent, Doctor Oz, is like a more suitable uh, a more suitable person to serve in the United States Senate, that's that's another matter as well. Um, you know, I know that there have been a lot of discussions about whether the Republicans have fielded like the strongest, you know, the strongest candidates in some, some of the races that, uh, are, are possible wins and maybe Pennsylvania is one of them,
0: but who knows? Well, I think, I think it's a demonstrably true fact that is really not controversial to say that, uh, the, the two party system that we have does not result in the best candidate being fielded by either party at any given time. Yeah. just often, you know, there's so many of these races where I just wonder how did we end up with these two candidates? I think it was several months ago. I just expressed online my condolences to all my Pennsylvania friends who have this choice that is, is really a no-win situation between <laughs> Dr. Oz, the sort of celebrity. Is he even a real doctor? Is he a, is he an MD? I don't even I know. I believe he
1: is. I believe okay. he is, Zach, but I think he's mostly known for his work on on TV.
0: Right. Exactly. So this, I mean, I was going to say pseudo doctor, but if he's, if he actually has a real MD, that's not entirely accurate, but you know what I mean by that. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: And then John Fetterman, who, I mean, is a literal stroke victim, who's, who's still basically rehabbing from that stroke and clearly exhibiting some, if not cognitive uh, effects from that, then certainly communicative effects from that. I mean, this is, uh, I mean, I think if I'm a Pennsylvania voter, I'm just in a situation where I just think I can't, I can't, I can't do this. I have to. I have to vote third party. I mean, this is yeah. just ridiculous. Thank Maybe you, so. GOP. Thank you, Democratic Party, for giving me these options because uh, I'm going to say no <laughs> to to both of them. I just think this this is a unfortunately a microcosm of what is happening across America. I often look at Europe and admire the uh, the parliamentary systems, the first past the post systems, the the pluralistic uh, political party systems that allow more than one party to uh, to collect votes. And have a say in the national conversation, enforce coalition building at the level of legislation. So you have to, you know, form a coalition government if you if you do not have an absolute majority. I think it's just an objectively better system that works better and does not contribute to the type of polarization that we have here. Now, granted, there are parallels to the polarization we have here, even in those systems. So you look at you look at at many countries in Europe, including Britain, for example. There is a lot of this the same kind of breakdown and polarization that we have here, but I think it's to a lesser degree and it's several years behind where we are now. I think yeah. where that exists, a lot of that is because uh, people, for better or worse, in this case, for worse, take their cues from this side of the pond and the ideas sort of get filtered that way now, um, you know, perhaps the reverse of the old direction. But uh, yeah, Pennsylvania is quite a cautionary tale, I think, and uh, it's not great. We'll see what happens. I had a an interesting exchange with a campaigner for Mandela Barnes, who is running for Senate in Wisconsin. And uh, this person thinks that I'm someone named Paul and texted me. It was just just a you know campaign worker. And they say, hi, Paul, I'm supporting Mandela Barnes for Senate because it's time for hard working families to have a chance at the American dream. So just boil your plate like you got to help the middle class. This is like so far indistinguishable. This could be a Republican or a Democrat. Everyone wants to help working families have a chance at the American dream. And they say, Mandela will fight, will fight inflation, put more money in our pockets, and make the wealthiest people who made trillions during the pandemic. I don't know. I mean, I don't, there's not a single person who made trillions during the pandemic. There's no such thing as a trillionaire anyway. But I guess they're talking about a class of people who made trillions, which is even debatable. Uh, anyway, you know, can Mandela Barnes count on your vote? <laughs> and I said, uh, what is Mandela's position on protecting children? You can probably see where this is going. Oh, Yes. Uh, and she, she responds, she, I, I say she because this is Diane, uh, who t- she signed to Diane the first time. And Diane says, Moms Demand Action has named Mandela a gun sense candidate of distinction. He embraces common sense reform supported by the majority of Americans, including universal background checks, banning bump stocks, and stopping the sale of weapons of war for personal use. Can he count on your vote? And I said, What about protecting children before they are born? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, so this led to a conversation that was probably less productive. Uh, she ended up with saying, um Mandela Barnes is a strong supporter of the rights of pregnant people to make decisions about their own bodies and I said what is what is pregnant people uh do you mean do you mean women and uh they said thank you for your time so
1: (laughs) they knew there was no no point in carrying on with that
0: yes indeed so that was uh that was the discussion uh with the Wisconsin uh the Wisconsin uh Mandela Barnes campaign wow
1: I you know I must have a magic phone number because I never get campaign calls or texts wherever my wife is always getting her phone is always ringing and she's getting stuff and a lot of people i know are just getting bugged all the time but not me
0: i i'm somewhere in between my brother has told me he gets multiple spam calls per day Mm -hmm. i get i don't know one a week maybe so Mm -hmm. i I definitely get some but it's it's nothing crazy Mm -hmm. well are you ready for the misinformation segment i've got some wild stories for you here and
1: i have been looking forward to this for days let's do it
0: all right there were so many to sift through. I, I did have to go with three just so I wouldn't break the mold for our uh, our things. But there were some honorable mentions along the way. They're just There's some crazy stuff out there. But I do have three. You pick the false one. Two of these are true. One of them is false. Okay. okay. So number one, if it's true, this is in the New York Times. All right. The New York Times labeled Biden this past week storyteller in chief in a long story about his tendency to play fast and loose with the truth. In this article, though, they never quite accuse him of outright fabrication, or at least certainly not malicious fabrication, but they do say that he tells stories, quote, with dates that don't quite don't quite add up, end quote, or that have, quote, the factual edges shaved off to make them more powerful, more powerful for audiences. End quote. And they cite this, uh, this you know, supposed expert on lying in the presidency. And this expert says, quote, he obviously, he being Biden, he obviously has this tendency where he's a good and decent man who in politics has felt like he could stretch the truth up to a point, just like virtually every president has done, end quote. That uh, expert, the New York Times says, is Eric Alterman, who's the author of a book called Lying in State, Why Presidents Lie and Why Trump is Worse, end quote. And Eric is a professor at the City University of New York. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So that's story one, New York Times. Biden's just shaving factual edges off to make make stories more powerful, powerful for his audiences. They're quoting. uh, They're quoting the literal author of a book called Lying in State, Why Presidents Lie and Why Trump is Worse. Okay. Okay. All right. That's New York Times. Number one. All right. Number two. uh, This one's from Twitter. Now, do you know who Randy Weingarten is, Andrew? That name
1: sounds vaguely familiar. Who is it?
0: Randy Weingarten is the head of the American Federation of Teachers, the largest teachers union in the U.S. She was a major proponent of school closures when COVID hit and a major proponent of keeping them closed for as long as humanly possible, even to the great detriment of our, of our children's uh, learning loss. Uh, in fact, unrelated to misinformation, but related to Randy Weingarten, uh, the New York Times just this past week finally had a story about how the pandemic uh, I mean, it, w- it wasn't the pandemic; it was the school closures in response to the pandemic. But the uh, pandemic has erased two decades of learning gains. Uh, I think, meaning we are now at you know the same levels of education that we had in the year 2002, uh, which is around the time that you know Bush had to pass No Child Left Behind because we were just at abysmal levels of child literacy and child learning and all this. So, anyway, lots of bad things from the pandemic uh, and our more more specifically our responses to it. Randy Weingarten has been at the head of of the what I would say the uh, detrimental camp, not actually advocating for our kids, but advocating for teachers to be able to stay home and and not teach in the classroom. All right. So Randy Weingarten, I mean, huge prominent booster for every single Democratic campaign cause uh, issue you can you can think of. So here's the story. Here, uh, this is not a this if if this is true, this is not a you know direct quote from a story. This is actually just a Twitter thing. But here's the misinformation thing. Randy Weingarten found herself waking up in Ukraine on a trip to Ukraine, uh, an official trip with the American Federation of Teachers to do some things with their Ukrainian counterpart. And she tweets out on October 10th, woke up this morning to reports of disgusting Russian missile strikes in Kiev, Lviv, and other cities heading to the border now to assess the situation. This Russian attempt to frighten civilians and the effect on children who are learning online today. Is why this ukraine flag trip is so important okay Mm. so that's it randy weingarten's in the 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 head of american america's largest teachers union is in ukraine heading to the border to assess damage from russian missile strikes
1: okay Okay. she sounds like the right person for that job okay exactly yeah
0: definitely uh we're (laughs) ukraine's in good hands uh number three uh This one also sort of on you know twitter and around the around the twitterverse uh you know an amalgamation of things uh, if true elon musk the world's richest man and head of spacex said that quote on twitter our first trip to mars will have a very special seat for vladimir putin end quote uh, this was to the delight and chagrin of critics on both sides some of whom thought he was making a thinly veiled expression of his desire to banish the russian strongman forever and others who thought he was inappropriately reserving a prime real estate on the eventual space vessel for a war criminal. So mm. Elon Musk, you know, offering, uh, offering to reserve a seat to Mars for Vladimir Putin. And some people taking exception for, for various reasons to that, to that expression. Okay. okay. Those are the three. Any questions before you, you dive in with your votes? No,
1: great batch, great batch of, of stories there. Surely they're all true. I, I, I can't even, you're, you're, you're trying to put one over on me, but assuming that we are still playing by the rules here, and one of them is false. I, I'm sure the first one must be true, unless you slipped something in about like, maybe the title of that guy's book isn't what it is or something. I I, uh, I think that first one sounds totally plausible. Um, it, it just makes me chuckle. Storyteller in chief. I mean, like, what a way to talk about a lie, a lying president. I mean, what a, what a ridiculous thing to say. So I'm going to say, let's start there. Number one is true.
0: That is correct. Yeah, it is absolutely true. Uh, He is storyteller in chief. The, um, yeah, the headline of the title actually, or the article actually says Biden comma storyteller in chief spins yarns that often unravel. And then the sub the sub the subtitle: President Biden has been unable to break himself of the habit of embellishing narratives to weave a political identity. So just just right here, there's so much baked in here. It's one the yarns often unravel. It's not his fault. They're not they're not necessarily untrue. They're sort of morally true. It's just mm-hmm. sort of that the yarns themselves unravel. Poor Biden. The yarns are unraveling. <laughs> and then uh, and then in the subtitle, uh, he's just in this habit. You know, he's just unable to break himself of yeah, this habit yeah, of em- and, ab- and embellishing. You know. Yeah. Um, But why does he do it? He's doing it to weave a political identity. Yeah, he's a a good guy. I mean, you know, (laughs) he's
1: just kind of telling stories, you know. Not to get, again, I always say this not to get controversial, but my understanding is there's even like all kinds of competing narratives about how and when he met his wife and like all all kinds of strange circumstances about the story they tell about their getting to know each other. I'll, I'll leave it there because I don't want to get in. I don't know all the facts. No, but, we, can, uh, we,
0: can, we can get controversial, Andrew. You know this. I mean, I well, saw. You must know
1: more than I do about this. And I, I don't really know. I don't any know details. about that.
0: Yeah, I don't know about that. But I did see something funny making the rounds because he was in Puerto Rico to review um, some of the responses to the tragic hurricane Ian and just some of the devastation that it caused. So we went to Florida and Puerto Rico to um, to see how the recovery efforts were going. And he made a comment that he was raised, he was, he said, I was sort of raised in the Puerto Rican community at home politically. Yeah. Uh, And this was then cut, there was a super cut on online where he was saying uh, that he was raised in the black church, that he had been, that he had gone to shul more than all these other people that he was talking to in a synagogue. I went to, when I was growing up, I went to shul more than all you did. And so he's just like taking on these very strange, (laughs) these very strange, uh, you know, ethnographic uh ethnic identities for himself along the way none of which as far as we can tell have any basis in truth but also none of which are empirically testable or falsifiable uh and so it's just i mean it's just it's just ridiculous i mean that's exactly what he's doing i heard an interesting interview with charles cw cook the uh, the national review writer yeah and he was just saying this is just who biden is it's it's who he's always been and uh to act like it's we're surprised just because he's doing it now is completely absurd he's always been he's always played fast and loose with the facts to sort of as the new york times would say weave this political identity uh which is just you know it's remarkable it's funny but but it's not at the same time
1: yeah it would be funny if it weren't so it would be funny so serious all right well that leaves me with two uh two more stories um I, I'm going to say that the uh, the one about the teachers union president going to Ukraine is also true. That that I don't know that that seems that seems plausible, mainly because I think the third one, I think there's some story there. There's something there, but it's not that one about about uh, Elon Musk and, and Putin. There must be you've 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 cooked something up there. I feel like you know I feel like I'm always telling my kids not to say that. I, it is my it is my It it is my intuition, based on our previous experiences, that uh, you've cooked up the third one. So I'm going to say two is true, three is false.
0: You're 100% correct, Andrew. You got it. Um, Let's let's take them in reverse order. Let's go with three and then two. So the Elon Musk thing, I mean, this was a a fun one. There is something here with Elon Musk and Putin, and that is that uh, Ian Bremmer, the sort of uh, strategic writer, journalist, um, thinker accused elon musk of having spoken with putin very recently and this was on twitter and musk basically said absolutely not true ian Bremmer's a liar so they had this twitter spat and um uh i you know it's no, no one knows i mean that's it's also not really a falsifiable thing did musk speak to putin in the last few months or not we don't know but there is this uh there is this dialogue about musk and putin kind of predictable because musk has um, for reasons uh, I do not entirely find clear or identify with, Musk has become a hero of the right. Mostly, I think because he wants to buy Twitter and has has said, you know, that the the left has gone a little bit off the rails. Uh, so, but I think because of that, it's, it's kind of just predictable that he'll eventually be labeled a Putin stooge because that tends to be what happens. Um, so I,
1: I believe he's also he's also said publicly that we ought to negotiate, you know, something with russia ukraine or something you know something something like that i I don't know the details but i heard something yeah he
0: did he tweeted he tweeted some idea of terms for peace in ukraine etc so i think that also certainly opened up opened him up to accusations of being a a putin stooge so i thought this was a fun a fun way of getting at some of those stories but it is not true that he said putin will have a special seat to mars (laughs) all right so the weingarten thing why in the world do you think this was plausible because this This to me was I I still can't believe this is actually a thing that the head of America's largest teachers union somehow is on a Ukraine trip at all. What, What in the world is she doing over there? And even more, more boggling that she wakes up tweets about Russian missile strikes and then says, I'm headed to the border to assess the situation. What are you doing?
1: I mean, everything Uh, you told uh, me about this person makes me think, you know, this is a person who um, maybe unwittingly just can't help but think of herself as kind of the center of the universe. And so, you know, of course, of course, she needed to go to the Ukraine for some reason. And of course, if something happens while she's there, I mean, she's got to figure out how to how to fix it, how to help, you know. Um,
0: I suppose, yeah, I suppose that's true.
1: Gosh, I've known people like that. I'll tell you, you know, anything goes wrong in the world and it's like, what are we doing about it? It's like, this has nothing to do with you, you know,
0: by the way, uh, I'm looking at Randy Weingarten's Twitter. There was when the, when the Ukraine conflict first kicked off and everyone was sharing their pictures of Ukraine flags and putting Ukraine flags in their, their, uh, Twitter bios and all of that. Uh, Weingarten and another, I think another staffer at the American Federation of teachers shared a picture of them holding a Ukraine flag and said, we stand with Ukraine. Uh, and it was just wonderful because the Ukraine flag was upside down. I remember that.
1: I I didn't know that's who that was, but I remember (laughs) the story of, of somebody holding it upside down.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Teachers, ladies and gentlemen. In her, in her, yeah, exactly. Teachers. This, this is who is educating our children in her Twitter bio. Now she has a Ukrainian flag, an American flag. A black flexed bicep muscle and uh what looks like a college graduate with the uh the mortarboard cap, uh who I think is a woman. So there's that.
1: No no zebras, though.
0: No it's correct. Yeah, I guess she's not a spoonie, but but okay. <laughs> <No. laughs> well, she does have the pronouns in bio as well. So there's just there's just all kinds of signaling going on, going this, on there. Uh, It's almost like if someone were to make a parody, if someone were to make a parody account of a teachers union head their account would be indistinguishable from randy weingarten's twitter account yeah <laughs> it's most especially this whole ridiculous ukraine thing i mean it's also just it's just so perfect like chef's kiss perfect that she points out that you know the kids in ukraine are are in class online today because of right. course they are of, right. course, of course they're
1: in where class else would online. they
0: be right okay anyway okay. that is the end of today's misinformation this is one of my favorite ones so far i mean just just really spectacular stuff here good job uh, not, I mean, it's not, it's not mine. It's the materials there for the taking. It was just a rich, just a rich week. As a, we say here, yes. a target what, a rich
1: environment 100.
0: in this <laughs> environment. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Let's go to our close read segment.
1: All right. Well, um, this week, if, uh, if I, if I, uh, should launch in, um, we are reading, uh, an article called the work of morning by Roger Scruton. I have here the, uh, October issue of First Things, and uh, it's in there. So the work of mourning by R- Sir Roger Scruton, the late great Sir Roger Scruton, uh, really one of the great thinkers in the Anglo-American world over the past many decades, who died in 2020. Um, I, I'm a I'm a big fan of Roger Scruton. He has influenced my thinking a whole lot. Uh, Zach, what about you? Have you have you read a lot of Roger Scruton in the past or dipped into him a little bit?
0: You know, as I was talking to my wife last night about this specific piece, uh, I was telling telling her that it was a fantastic read and I am not, I'm not a Scrutonian. I mean, a, I'm, a, I'm certainly a Scrutonian um, uh, by sort of, uh, I guess, ideological alignment. I agree mm-hmm. with so much of what I have read that he says, but I'm not super well versed with this stuff. I've picked up books here and there and read fragments of his things and read some first things essays and whatever, but uh, cannot say that I'm overly familiar with the particularities of his work.
1: Well, I love it. I mean, I love the way he writes, and um, he really helped me understand lots of things in new ways that I hadn't thought about quite the way that he that he put them. You know, some of his most famous books are "How to Be a Conservative," uh, a little book called "Beauty." He's written a, a ton about aesthetics. He uh, he's written uh, about. All kinds of issues in philosophy, music. I mean, he's just a—he was just a kind of polymath. He worked behind the Iron Curtain with um, different groups to establish these sort of underground universities in Poland and in Czechoslovakia and places like that. He's a real hero in Central Europe uh, and in um, in other parts of the world. And um, yeah, he's just uh, just one of these sort of great men of letters. I'm sure that many of, of your listeners, Zach know a lot about Roger Scruton and, and, um, I'm, I'm just a big fan. So I'm really delighted that we had an opportunity to read this, this piece, which is obviously published posthumously. It's going to be featured in a new collection of, uh, of his writings and that, that will be coming out at some point. And, um, I believe the collection, I don't have it in front of me. Maybe you have it, um, it has the word mourning in the title or or it, or it has the same. Title. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's the meaning of mourning perspectives on death, loss and grief.
1: Yeah. Which must be things he was writing towards the end of his life when he knew he was dying of cancer. Um, but in this piece, you know, he talks about mourning, um, the importance of mourning and, and he doesn't talk about himself. He doesn't talk about his illness or his desire to be or need to be mourned or anything like that. But I, I would imagine that's certainly in the background of his mind as he, as he's writing this. And for me, as somebody who admired him, uh, I'm certainly mourning him as I'm, as I'm reading um, his work and thinking about him again. So I'll just give a little rundown of some of the things that he talks about here, and then we'll, then we'll um, have a richer discussion about it. Now, the way that I read this piece, and this is not a super long piece, it's a, it's a a one sitting piece for sure, and not even a super long sit. Um, But I, 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 I distinguish four different parts to the piece. The first part, he talks about Freud's uh, Sigmund Freud's discussion of the work of mourning, that mourning is this like necessary activity that human beings have to do. uh, Because there are some losses that we experience in our lives that are existential, that they change who we are. And so if we don't mourn them, if we don't like properly address them, then we get stuck. And, um, Freud talked about the state of melancholia being melancholic is what happens when you don't mourn properly. Um now Scruton says he's not exactly a freudian but he says he thinks Freud was really onto something with this idea that you have to mourn you have to mourn properly or you you end up getting stuck. Scruton as he always does likes to sort of, you know, go back into go back into the past into history into literature, ancient religion. You know, he really wants to sort of trace where, where things come from. And so he goes back to Homer, he goes back to, um, goes back to Antigone, sort of the, the ancient Greek literary tradition and talks about the way in which mourning is depicted um, in the pre-Christian tradition in the West. And he says this, I thought this was just a beautiful line. He says, this is a duty of piety. And until it is performed, the cosmos is shot through with a metaphysical fault that is to say, mourning is a duty of piety. It's a duty, but it's also a kind of religious duty. And the, the universe requires it in a, in a manner of speaking. I know that sounds a little, little hippy-dippy, but um, he means it here in this sort of very, you know, this this ancient context of of um, the way people live. So that's the first section. Then the second, second section, he talks a little more about religion and the kind of religious role of Uh, or the way we mourn as religious people, but he also talks about, and I'd be curious to see your, your, um, your understanding of what he means by the Disneyfication of death, the Disney Disneyfication. And you know, where he talks about how we have lost the sense, at least in the West of our obligation to the dead, that we, we cremate bodies, we scatter ashes. Like we, we sort of, we've lost the sense of, um, of kind of the, the, you know, erecting monuments to people of kind of communing with people in the same way that, that we used to do. Um, this is definitely something that I experienced when I was in ministry as a, as a Protestant minister, as an Episcopal priest, just the way that people think of what to do with their departed loved ones, you know? So maybe we can talk a little more about that. Um, but then he he gets into the relig- religious thing a little bit more. And he says, now, you know, there, there's kind of a, a false impression that religion is supposed to, provide some kind of way of like undoing our pain or like, you know, that, 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 that mourning somehow like can reverse the loss that we've experienced. He says, no, 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 that, that doesn't happen. He says instead, and I quote again, he says that religion encases our losses and surrounds them with a protective seal of ritual as the oyster grows a pearl around the grain of sand. That's a classic scrutin turn of phrase right there. Just a really beautiful comparison, poetic. Um, really poetic way of putting it. Um, and then he also talks about how um, with religion, especially with Christianity, but also pre-Christian religion in the West, um, loss can turn into something otherworldly, namely sacrifice, that there's a kind of meaningfulness about loss that we can understand through the religious rituals that we, that we apply to it. And he says, and I thought this was really powerful, that with the loss of religion, we, now, ex- we now experience the loss of loss. I'd be curious to get your thoughts on that. Like what's the kind of importance of not losing loss in a way. Then he goes into in the third section, just talking about art. Okay. So he's like, all right, maybe you're not a religious person. What about art in the Western tradition? Anyway, most of our greatest works have something to do with death. That's just the way that it is. And then um, one of my favorite parts of the, of the article, he talks about the elegy, the poetic form of the elegy. And he talks about how sort of around world war one time in England, he he described it as an elegiac culture that it was a culture that created these works of mourning that sought to kind of make sense of um make sense of loss in this beautiful way which seems not really to characterize our society today anymore in the fourth section he then goes into almost like a kind of test case for how mourning goes beyond just the individual or maybe the kind of small community and he talks about the country of germany the nation of germany and how their country was destroyed because of Nazism and how also because of Nazism's um, appropriation of German culture, um, the German people have been unable to mourn the destruction of their culture. And it's manifested in all kinds of ways that that seem to be pretty bad for the world. The article then kind of ends abruptly, maybe because it was something Scruton was still working on when he died. We, we don't really know. Um, but it, it seemed to end a little bit abruptly. Uh, for me, so those are my big takeaways, Zach, about uh, the article that we read. Um, I'm curious to to get your thoughts.
0: Yeah, I think you did a great job summarizing that, um, and I don't really have anything to add. But maybe we can pick up on this um, on this disnification piece that you yeah. had mentioned. Um, actually, maybe maybe first, uh, first we can uh, first I will add. I think you mentioned this a little bit, but he talks about the Western traditions' sort of unique take on mourning and on suffering. And he contrasted it with that of the Eastern tradition. He mentioned the uh the Upanishads, this these these sacred Hindu texts that basically form the basis of a lot of Hindu philosophy, and how the the sort of the the most desired state in the Eastern tradition, at least in the Hindu tradition, is to sort of detach yourself from everything such that you fear losing nothing. And he contrasts that with the Western tradition, which basically says, no, attach yourself to a lot because actually love is is the most important thing. And to detach yourself from everything is to be barren of love, to be love shorn. And we don't want that. Uh, we don't want to sort of um, ignore our suffering or to not have suffering. What we want to have is a state in which our our suffering has meaning, in which our suffering can be consecrated, in which our suffering can be offered up for some transcendent purpose. I think that is a really important part of this piece. He didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about it, but I think it helps, to, it helps to sort of situate the metaphysical frame in which he is writing. And that's a big part of his argument here is that I think we find ourselves in a metaphysical frame of Disney, perhaps whom I say to tie it to the Disney issue. We have lost this religious frame and, and, and this sort of this Western religious frame not to say that, it's, that 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 religious frame is not cannot be universally applicable, but that it is it has found uh, its most fertile soil, I think, in the Western tradition, um, and that I think is is, is really important. Uh, the Disneyfication piece, I was thinking about this um, when he wrote last night. I liked the the line, and when you just asked me about it, I was thinking about what deaths do do we see in Disney works? I'm thinking about the classic cartoons of our childhood, and probably Bambi. Right. The the death of Bambi's mom is the most the most sort of poignant Disney death. Um, Snow White has a sort of death, although there's a resurrection. Uh, and this stuff is maybe more fresh in my mind because I have young kids who are <laughs> enjoying the classic Disney's. Um, but it's Disney doesn't like to deal with death. Yeah. Disney likes death to, to, to appear off screen. And if it happens, of course, it's nonviolent. It doesn't involve it doesn't involve a, a violent wrenching away of the, the loved one. It involves, uh, you know, an a almost uh, sleep-like state, like Bambi's mom, for example, or certainly like Snow White. And it's a very gentle, it's a very gentle thing. And then you move past it in the very next frame. Uh, and it's just sort of forgotten. And there's there's no process of mourning properly considered. I think that's what Scruton means by the Disneyfication of it. And I suspect he also means the fact that it just doesn't really happen anymore. Uh, you know, think of a Pixar movie. I don't, I'm sure I'm sure there are deaths in some Pixar movies. I'm not thinking of any right now because it's a hard thing to tackle in a children's film. And it's a really hard thing to tackle in the sort of the metaphysical frame in which in which Disney operates in which this there is no there is no deeper transcendence to what we have. Um you could you could maybe argue did you see the the movie Soul, Andrew the Pixar film about the, the I this, actually this missed soul? that one. My kids have seen it.
1: I don't okay. I don't think they loved it. I think they liked it okay, but I don't I don't remember yeah. I haven't seen it.
0: I've seen part of it. I didn't love what I saw. Um, but they I think they try to get at something like this and you you might be able to use this as a, as a counter argument to what Scruton is calling the disneyfication of things. But at the same time, it's a sort of disney it's a disneyfied take on the metaphysics of the eternal. It's a disneyfied take on the metaphysical frame in which Scruton is writing. So I think it in sort of it actually sort of validates his point. Yeah. Uh, And that's where we find ourselves. We find find ourselves in this state of existence in which we don't want to talk about death. When death happens, we would prefer to have our loved one cremated so that we can just sort of scatter their ashes in the sea and and never have to visit their grave again. Um, Because we don't want to be reminded of the pain. We don't want to be consecrated by the pain. We don't want to uh, experience transformation through the pain. We want to sort of just not have the pain. We want the pain to be gone so that we can continue on with our lives um, and be none the worse for what has happened. Now, that's not an indictment necessarily on the people who are mourning. I think mourning is a really tough thing. And I think here of my mom who passed away uh, two two years ago, Andrew, and I've shared a little bit more with you about that. But um, th- there there is a very real tendency to want to just be done with it all. You know, to, like, I just wish we could go back to the way things were. Um, even if mom's not going to be back, I wish that we could just be done with this mourning thing because it's it's a bummer to be so freaking bummed out all the time you know what i mean and so that's a very human tendency a very understandable one but the reality is as Scruton says there's this in the right metaphysical frame there is this sort of sanctifying element to the grief and there's this there's this um filial duty as well or familial duty in my case um to mourn and honor the dead and make sure that their memories are not forgotten because that is what that is what is owed uh, and so I really appreciated that take from the Scruton. I think it does fly in the face of this Disney vacation. Let's sort of forget about death. Let's 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 cremate all of our dead. Let's scatter their ashes in the sea. Let's uh, I saw a recent article about the, the newest thing, which is um, I forget what it's called, but there's alkaline hydrolysis, which is basically sort of it's not cremation, but it's turning your loved one's bodies into basically water. Mm-hmm. And then there's a new thing. they're doing this in the the Pacific Northwest. I'll see if I can find the article about it, but um, they basically compost your loved one's Mm -hmm. body. So just turn your loved one into soil, which is actually, I think a more Christian idea than cremation or uh, than the alkaline hydrolysis, but it's, it's still the the whole process of it is definitely lacking. It like takes place in a warehouse. It's accelerated, you know, unnaturally and, um, all this stuff. So anyway, those are, that's my brief response to, uh, to what you just said.
1: Yeah. A couple of thoughts. I want to start with the cremation thing. Uh, you know, it, um, for those who, who are listening, who are Catholic, for example, uh, cremation or, or some of these other means of, um, you know, uh, of disposing, I suppose, of the remains of a loved one are not heretical. You can do them. Um, but there is a real danger that if you that if you do them you are doing them because you don't you're not thinking about the person in the way anyway that like our spiritual forebears would have done um the reason that we bury a body is that we believe in the resurrection of the body Um, which to go back to the the kind of east versus west thing christians do not believe that our destiny is to be nothing our destiny is to be us forever um, and indeed to have a resurrected body, right? Now, God being God can put cremated ashes back into, you know, can create a resurrected body out of them. They don't have to be the the, the body that's in the ground. But when you put the body in the ground and you put a marker on it, and maybe you put it in the churchyard where your ancestors are going to keep worshiping week in and week out, it creates. Not only the space for the morning, which certainly will happen in the ritual that is done in a timely manner, right according to the tradition of the church, but it also creates the ongoing, in a sense, the ongoing dialogue that it, the ongoing presence, which is, um, which is wholesome, and it isn't it isn't Disneyfied. And I think another thing to, to address that question, Zach. The other thing that I think Scruton is getting at here is the big enemy. For Scruton in his aesthetic writing is always kitsch, kitschiness. So he's just so opposed to kitsch, anything that's kitsch. And I think Disney to him represents kitsch. And I think to him in a sense, cremating, scattering ashes, just kind of making up your own thing, you know, like, um, like in the film, The Big Lebowski, where Donnie dies and they take his, you know, they they get a coffee can and they throw the ash, they try to throw them into the ocean, but they fly back into their faces. And it's funny, right? It's a really funny scene or whatever. But it also, you know, it also demonstrates where where we are with the way that we mourn, the way that we think about our, the way that we think about our losses, that there's a kind of, there's a kind of kitschiness about it. Um, and he writes here, um, I'll just read this this little part at the end of the part where he's talking about Disneyfication. He says, "Since the obligation is unreal, its fulfillment becomes a kind of ritualized pretense, an opportunity for displays of kitsch emotion." Now, that's an interesting thing. I think, like, we do actually encounter people who, whose, even their public presentation of mourning, is kind of performative, you know, rather than something that really is going to help them, like that really is going to like help them fulfill their obligation and heal. And um, Scruton continues here. He says, this life and this love, it tells us were no more real than the feelings displayed at the end of it. So let's make a pretty display of them and move on. You know, Let's scatter the ashes, maybe like go to some pretty seaside place and and do that, rather than sort of like really getting into the experience, you know, and and having the ritual and um and you know, really then he says, then uh, looking to tend the grave within us as well. Um so I don't know. That's just sort of a, a bit of this and a bit of that. And I wanna I don't know if you have more to say about that, but I, I sort of wanted to touch on a couple of other things related to the Christian view of mourning that Scruton touches on, but maybe we could go a little bit deeper with.
0: Yeah, I would, um, I'd probably use, I, I'd probably say that you, you're absolutely correct, of course, that cremation is not heretical. The church has not uh, deemed it to be such that it is, it is allowed, but not encouraged. I would say it's it's heterodox, right? The uh, The accepted tradition for literally millennia, and the church has been that we buried the dead. And like you said, we buried the dead because we anticipate the resurrection. I remember seeing a comic. I don't even know if this is still made. It was years ago, but the comic was called Coffee with Jesus. And it was a bit, it certainly bordered on irreverent, perhaps even blasphemous at times because it was about Jesus just sort of drinking coffee and you know being a, quote, bro with people who he chatted with. And someone came to Jesus and was all upset about cremation happening at his church. And Jesus responded and said something like, you know, bro, I literally assembled the world atom by atom. It's not going to be a problem at the end or something like that. And I mean, like the gist of that is true, as you said, Andrew, that we don't we don't not cremate because we don't think God can reassemble every single atom of the person who has died. We don't cremate because we 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 hold respect for the body that God has made. uh, The body soul union that is the person as we wait for the reunion of the soul with the body, the resurrection of the body uh, et So all of those, I think are important things to think about. Um, and then with respect to, uh, to your identification of his, his line about sort of kitsch displays, I think too, of just sort of social media and how, uh, we have these sort of like performative displays of morning on social media. And I, I really don't want to pass judgment on people who, who express their morning on social media, but I don't think it's the healthiest way to express your morning or to work through your morning. I don't think it is about you know sharing a picture of your loved one and then a few paragraphs of reflection on how much they mean to you. I think our, our mourning should be more real than that. Our mourning, you know, I think we owe these people more. We owe these people, for example, a visit to their gravesite and not simply a you know a post in the ethernet, uh, in the ether on you know how much we miss them.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. And something that I I wanted to highlight before we uh, before we run out of time is. You know, there's one there's one place where he mentions, um, obviously, Jesus's words from the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And um, I, I was just trying to leaf through again and see precisely where he where he uses that that turn of phrase. But he doesn't really he doesn't explore that in depth. And something that I, I thought might be useful for for our listeners is um for for me to share something that Pope Benedict wrote about about that. About that verse, because uh, I'll preface it by saying this: where Scruton says there, you know, we have this sort of culture where where there's we we either sort of mourn or we don't. Um, Maybe that's the way to put it. I don't know. We either sort of mourn properly or we end up in a state of melancholia. Pope Benedict talks about he contrasts two different kinds of mourning, and he uses the figures of Judas and Peter. As kind of two exemplars of the good of the bad morning and the good morning. So I'm just going to share this little this this couple of sentences right here, which is from this great book that everybody, everybody should read, um, Pope Benedict the 16th Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth series. And this is from the first volume. And this is the chapter about the Beatitudes. He says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Is it good to mourn and to declare mourning blessed? There are two kinds of mourning. The first is the kind that has lost hope, that that has become mistrustful of love and of truth, and that therefore eats away and destroys man from within. But there is also the morning occasioned by the shattering encounter with truth, which leads man to undergo conversion and to resist evil. This morning heals because it teaches man to hope and to love again. Judas is an example of the first kind of mourning struck with horror at his own fall. He no longer dares to hope and hangs himself in despair. That's the melancholia in a sense, right? Um, but one that he takes action with. And then, um, Pope Benedict concludes, Peter is an example of the second kind struck by the Lord's gaze. He bursts into healing tears that plow up the soil of his soul. He begins anew and is himself renewed. Um, I thought that was really just really terrific. Just a really a really fruitful way for us to think about the the way we the way we should deal with mourning. Um especially uh those of us who are who are Christians. Like what does it mean that it's a blessed thing for us to under to undertake this work that Scruton is is kind of um contextualizing for us here. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or if you want to uh wrap up the piece with any other points that Scruton makes.
0: Briefly, I'll just say that language of plowing up the soil of his soul in reference to Peter is incredibly powerful for me, just to, to picture that, that this is what this is what the encounter with truth, who is Christ, is and gives us hope. And this is what true mourning, good mourning should give rise to. Uh, I think that's beautiful. It's also, it's, it's always it's striking to me, you know, I've heard that passage a million times, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And it's easy to just think, oh yeah, here's what Jesus is saying. You know, like people who are sad, they won't be sad anymore. that will be great. And you know, like that's, that's all there is to it. But actually he's calling blessed, those people who are mourning. Why? Um, Because mourning is a good thing to do. Mm -hmm. And I I really appreciate how Scruton's piece here describes exactly why that is and gets at something super important that I certainly have not thought through enough, but I found this piece very helpful along those lines. Um, And, and, he does apply at the end. I mean, he sort of, as you mentioned, it ends pretty abruptly. He pivots to Germany and starts talking about this, but he does. And you describe this very well already in your sort of recap. He applies this at a societal level and asks, what do we lose if we are not able to collectively mourn as a society? And he talks about Germany and how Germany was, uh, had, had sustained the longest continuous tradition of music, for example, in the known world. Uh, up until World War II, how it had this, this glowing culture of arts and science and technology and architecture, uh, all of these wonderful things. And then that tradition itself actually produced Hitler, the madman, but who Scruton says was not simply a madman. He was actually an intellectual. He was an aesthete. He was someone who valued the German intellectual and cultural traditions and wanted to build on those. And because of those actually went the way that he that he went became a sort of a German supremacist and an Aryan supremacist, et cetera, and became the, the most evil murderous madman the world has ever seen. And so, so, so Schulten basically says this culture was amazing. Then this culture produced Hitler. And so because of Germany's inability to mourn what it had lost and to, to have the sort of, to use Benedict's language, to have the soil of its soul plowed and ready for renewal, because it couldn't do that. It suffered the loss of all of those things. And now to walk around you know i don't know frankfurt germany or berlin germany is to walk again, walk amid this sort of like this gray barren maze of industrial statist buildings uh amid a country that has really lost all sense of identity um and and does not know how to reclaim the culture that its own people hitler and his cronies sort of stole from it um, and i thought that was a really interesting question because yeah we can look at that and say well that was the 1940s that was a long time ago but what's happening now? What, what you know? What is what is Europe not able to recover because it can't properly mourn? What is perhaps America unable to properly recover? Maybe most importantly, what about the church? How does this apply to the church in which we find ourselves? What should we be mourning properly uh, that we are not, and we are thus sort of cutting ourselves off from the the the, the, the potential of renewal? Um, so he left it as really an open question. I think probably because he. Probably passed away before the the essay was written in his eyes, complete in his eyes. But I thought that was a good um, a good closing note, if only to raise the question of what do we need to be mourning now that we are not? What will be? What will we lose in the future because we're not mourning right now?
1: Yeah, and I can only hope that in the volume that will that will come out eventually that will include this. There may be a bit more of that because I think I think he's really onto something there, and it's, this is stuff he's written about. He had, he had written about in his life. I mean, he wrote this book called England and Elegy. He wrote a book about, about Anglicanism called Our Church, which, which goes yes, into I some. I read days. that one. It's a very good book, I think. Um, and, uh, and he, he did this in, in various places, but I, I think, I, I think that it goes way beyond just Germany. I think that's a great test case. You know, they're a particularly extreme, uh, extreme situation, but there, maybe if we did more mourning, we would, we would have a better relationship with with our past rather than just sort of. We I just at this point it seems as um, I, I hesitate to say, to say as a culture because we don't really even have a culture, but we we don't know what to do with our past. We don't. We don't know what to do yeah, with our I past agree. as a people, as a as a nation, as nations, as a world. We just don't know. Uh, so maybe becoming a bit more elegiac or something um, would would get us back on track. Who knows.
0: By the way, I'm glad you were the first one to say that word because uh, I've read it frequently. I've never actually heard elegiac said out loud. And I was like, El- elegiac? El- elegiac? I don't know what the, what the correct pronunciation is. So I'm glad that you, uh, you blazed that. I for just me,
1: say you. things confidently and uh, give the impression that I know what I'm saying. So I hope that our listeners will correct me if, I, if it is not, in fact, elegiac.
0: Well, um, someone once told me, it was very wise, they said never make fun of someone for mispronouncing anything. Because it means they learned the word through reading.
1: Absolutely,
0: I was like, "That's, that's a good point. It's a very good point." I mispronounce words all the time, and uh, you know, it's we all do. This is what it is. We you all just own do. it. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, yeah, i really not sure how to pronounce it, but we'll we'll go with elegiac. I'm, it sounds correct. Um, all right, let's go, move on to the recommendation section, Andrew. What do you have to recommend to our listeners today?
1: All right, I am going to recommend a TV show called A French Village which is uh, one that I've been watching for months and months. My wife and I are really savoring it. We love it. It's seven seasons long, 70 some odd episodes. Each one is a solid hour. Uh, it takes place between 1940 and 1945, I guess, basically the whole span of, of the second world war as France experienced it more well, just about. And, um, it has to do with life in a French village under German, not German occupation per se, because it's in the southern part of France where they had the um, the Vichy uh, regime. But uh, it's a very fascinating portrait of life under uh, under the Nazis for, for the French. It's kind of a soap opera. I mean, there's there's love stories, there's deaths, there's people coming and going. There's all kinds of intrigue in the town. There's this ongoing question all the time about kind of who's collaborating, who's not collaborating. You know, how do you just sort of get on with life under these strange circumstances? Will the war ever end? All this kind of stuff. Uh, It is, it's just fantastic. I I love it. It's got, um, it's got some adult stuff in it from time to time. So just beware uh, any viewers who may be sensitive to that sort of thing, but it is thoroughly satisfying. It's in French with subtitles. So I love that kind of thing. If that's somebody else's kind of thing. Then great, but I think you'll just like it for it's just kind of uh, kind of addictive and uh, a real window into uh, a subject that isn't often dealt with.
0: Where can we stream it? Uh, yes. Are you streaming it somewhere or get it from yes, the library? A French
1: or? Village is. I, I, I meant to say that a French Village is available. Most of the seasons are available on Amazon Prime if you're a Prime member, but not all of them, which is kind of annoying. We have been able to get the other seasons through Hoopla through the public library. So if you have a library card and you have Hoopla, you can get it there. There may be other places to get it too.
0: Is it is it odd seasons that are not available? Like, you know, you can't get one and four yep. on Amazon or? Sadly, no. that's
1: right. It's, it's odd not, seasons. Okay. I don't get it.
0: Interesting. Weird. Yep. Uh, well, I will definitely check that out. That sounds uh, interesting. It sounds uh, it sounds like more of the storytelling that uh, I think we, we should do more often. You know, not just like this really exciting action film that keeps you on the edge of your seat, but rather just a, a beautiful story of humanity. Yep. It's a real
1: human <laughs> uh, experiencing story. Experiencing
0: all the yeah i love that um my recommendation is very different from that uh but i've been uh listening to a lot of johnny cash while i work Mm. um and johnny cash uh i mean our listeners know who johnny cash is but uh i've just been been renewed in my appreciation for his work he has these really soulful um spiritual deep ballads um that i think get to the heart of uh, of so much of the human spirit and human longing. And I've just been really appreciating his music. So would encourage you to go just listen to some some Johnny Cash, just find you know one of the greatest hits compilations and listen through it. Uh, he was a fantastic singer, really remarkable guy. Uh, and I've been enjoying his work. So simple, short recommendation for me this week.
1: That's a great one, Zach. And I, if I may, th- this is also a huge relief. I'm a huge Johnny Cash fan as well. And my wife is too. And it's funny, this very morning, I was standing at the gas pump and I was thinking, you know, Zach and I haven't really talked about our musical interests yet. I really hope he's not into like really garbage
0: music. That would be, that would be. Just imagine dragons oh, and in sync, okay. you know, <laughs> the good stuff. <laughs> well, my- <laughs> no, I love Johnny Cash. Yes, indeed. Um, yeah, we should have a more in-depth discussion about, uh, about music. I mean, I'm sure my tastes have, have, uh, have a lot of refinement, uh, to do. And you probably oh, have much more refined taste than I no, do. No, I mean, but-
1: you're an actual musician. So that, that you definitely have a, a big leg up on me.
0: Well, we've at least identified one area of overlap and that's Johnny Cash. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. All right. Excellent. All right. Well, that is it for this episode of what a week. Uh, Andrew, thanks for th- thanks again for joining me. It was a good discussion. We'll look forward to the next week. I do want to mention uh, if you were listening to trying to listen to the Jeremy Christensen interview uh, that I released earlier this week and you were turned off by the ridiculous um, disparity in volume levels between my volume and Jeremy's do not despair. I fixed it. You can go back and listen. So apologies for that. We'll try my best not to let it happen again. I was telling Andrew before we started recording, I don't know what happened, but uh, I definitely messed it up. And apologies for that. Uh, so that is fixed. You can go back and listen. Also, if you have not yet, if you're watching this on YouTube, go ahead and subscribe to the channel. If you are listening to this on a podcast and you're on an iPhone on Apple Podcasts, please go give us a rating and review. It helps the show a lot. Uh, and thanks so much for your listening. If you have any comments or would like to just send us a question, send us a note. Zach, Z A C at credopodcast.com and until next time god bless you